And just to anyone, you know, who's out there in the sports world and, and trying to figure out their way to navigate it, I would just say, nurture the relationships, um, trust what you bring to the table and just keep going. And, and you're going to end up in the spaces where you're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. So recognize, um, I think I posted this earlier this week on, on my social media that any time that I was rejected was a redirection in the place that I needed to go. Maybe I didn't realize that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there's so much value in the no as well. It's going to guide you where you need to go. And so just trust that you're going to end up where you're supposed to be and, and, and believe in the work you do. Reflect on how we learned growing up or if you are around little kids. They play all the time. And they learn so rapidly in part because they're playing all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, make believe comes very natural, natural to them. Improvising is very natural to them. They can take whatever objects they have around them and create a whole story um, with those tools. And so it's something that we do very naturally as, as young children. And then we learn very rapidly somewhere along the line. I think we start getting the message that you need to take life more seriously. Play is silly. um, You're too old for this. And I just really push back against that. I think we're in a play deficit Mm -hmm. in this country. I think that we, we overly focus on work, 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 work. And I think that's detrimental to our mental health. It's detrimental to our relationships, um, our emotional health. We need to play more. And play is the foundation of creativity, of innovation. Um, Like this is how we actually advance as a society by playing more. So the opposite um, of play is not work. It's actually depression. Hello and welcome to episode 34 of the 50 Cups of Coffee podcast. I am your host, Bobby Audley. I am a speaker and trainer who helps teams and organizations build winning cultures. As a trainer, I have had the privilege of working with some of the best athletic programs in the world. As a keynote speaker, I have given two TEDx talks and I have spoken on stages in 36 states and counting at national conferences, Fortune 500 companies, and to Team USA. To learn how I can serve your team, head on over to bobbyaudley.com. 50 Cups of Coffee is an idea that began with a TEDx talk in 2016 and has become a pillar of employee engagement at organizations, a tool for developing young professionals, a simple yet powerful practice for connecting a team of players, and of course, a podcast. This podcast is a show where I have coffee and conversation with some of the best leaders and coaches in the world, and we talk about leadership, team culture, and the power of connection. My guest today is a fascinating one. After working with the Seattle Seahawks, the director of player engagement for the Seahawks had this to say about her company. Improv Alchemy rapidly removes the walls that may exist between players, allowing the group to make connections and build relationships more quickly. This perfectly represents why I wanted to grab a cup of coffee with my guest today. Before we get into the show, really quick, season two is dedicated to the late coach Ashley Riggs, a UNC Tar Heel national champion, captain under our opening guest for season two, Anson Dorrance, and a friend of the Audley family. Just three months ago, Ashley passed away after a long battle with cancer. In honor of Ashley, an annual award is being set up through the UNC Women's Soccer Program. This award will be presented annually to a player that demonstrates hard work, perseverance, and fight. Monies will also go to sponsoring high school teams and players who otherwise may not be able to afford to attend a UNC soccer camp. Donations can be sent to Educational Foundation Women's Soccer, 
P.O. Box 2446, Chapel Hill, North Carolina, 27515. Checks can be made out to Educational Foundation Women's Soccer, and be sure to put Ashley's name in the memo line. And I have put all this information in the show notes for you as well. Now let's get to the show. My guest today is the founder of Improv Alchemy, and my second episode focused on the power of improv. Today I sit down with Lainey Hodges. A Denver native, Lainey earned her bachelor's degree in health and exercise science from Syracuse University. She earned a master's degree from the University of Denver, and she studied sport counseling at San Diego University for integrative studies. Lainey studied improvisation at the Magnet Theater in New York City and Graffenberg Productions in Denver. Lainey has experience in developmental work within the public school system, private business, criminal justice, and professional athletics. This episode is quintessential 50 cups of coffee. First of all, it came about because of my 50 cups of coffee challenge. Lainey listens to the podcast. She came to the podcast by way of Harry Swain, who she's worked with at the Ravens. So she listened to his first episode of the entire show and then listened to Wyatt Unger's episode about improv. And after Wyatt's episode, reached out to me via LinkedIn to just connect. And so we hopped on the phone. She reached out, said, you know, like a fan of the show and we'll have to connect. And so we did a 50 virtual 50 cups of coffee. And after that, at the end of that conversation, we both said, let's let's hop on Zoom and, and do this as a podcast. I'd love to interview you and your journey for the show. I did that because of the journey that we're going to get into. I spent much more time on this episode on Lainey's journey than I planned. And the reason I end up doing that is her journey is fascinating. And I believe it's deeply informative and eye-opening. As I often say, it's easy to look at someone's LinkedIn page and think, how could I have that career or a career like that? And I'm telling you, after you hear how she did it, it is it is informative and eye-opening. That's, that's the best way I can put it. In her career, Lainey has served as a performance training consultant for athletic teams at every level of sport. She has served as the player engagement coordinator for the NFL, working at their corporate offices in New York City. You will love hearing how she got that job. And after that job, she set out to start her own performance coaching company, working with NFL teams such as the Seattle Seahawks and the Ravens, as well as countless other organizations. To check out Lainey's work and learn more about her outside of this episode, head on over to LaineyHodges.com. For now, enjoy my cup of coffee with Lainey Hodges. I've always loved athletics. Just growing up in Denver, we were Denver Broncos season ticket holders, you know, just bleed orange and blue from growing up through that. And so I wanted to work in some capacity in sports. Initially, I thought I wanted to do athletic training. Mm -hmm. And that was part of why I chose Syracuse University coming all the way to Denver. Um, I didn't go there, by the way, as I get excited about that. A lot of people think I went there because I'm constantly (laughs) posting about it. And I I recently posted um, when Joe Biden won, not a political statement, just a Joe Biden statement. He had a picture of him holding a Syracuse like lacrosse helmet. So I posted it. And one of my friends from college was like, you got to at least take like two classes there. if you're going (laughs) to keep putting this stuff up. But I grew up around there. So in the same way that you're a Denver Broncos fan, we didn't have a pro team up there. So I'm, I'm a Syracuse fan. You went there. I interrupted you. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, no, it's that orange and blue. Plus yeah. it made it very easy for me. That's to true. You got a lot of gear. Colors. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, 
So the, the, the appeal of Syracuse was that it had a health and exercise science program and that it had athletics to watch. Mm-hmm. I'm never going to claim that I myself am a great athlete. I was a great skier, but um, I also played field hockey and tennis in high school, and there was no way I was making either team at Syracuse. Mm-hmm. So I wanted the, a team in football to watch, and McNabb was the quarterback at the time. The basketball team is always great. And then lacrosse is also huge here in Denver as well, mm-hmm. and the Syracuse lacrosse team always at the top. Um, was that an so, easy was that an easy decision for you as a as a high school student to say I'm going to go to a major flagship Division One program because I want to watch those sports and I'm not going to play or did you have a a moment in time where you were debating trying to play in college? So I never had a, a moment where I was debating playing in college. I was very clear that I was not that great of an athlete. I wasn't going to be able to make a team of a school like Syracuse. What mm-hmm. actually drew me to Syracuse was when I was a junior. And they made it um, to, I believe, the final four in the NCAA tournament. And my boyfriend at the time was like, Syracuse is my team. And it had (laughs) never crossed my mind to even look at Syracuse. And then when he said that and I watched the tournament, I just, it sparked my interest. And so when I looked at their programming and their sports, it's like, oh, this could be a really good fit. And then I took a college visit my senior year in October. It was a beautiful sunny day all the leaves were changing. The campus is gorgeous. And it just, it drew me in. And I said, this is it. This is where I want to go. So I applied early there. My backup school was Arizona state and I got into Syracuse. Yeah. Two very different schools. You you are the anecdotal reason why these schools spend so much money on athletics. So (laughs) it works. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes. And then by, I think, mid-November, I knew that I had been accepted and I was done with that whole college application process. So that was a huge relief. So my intention was to go there and study to be an athletic trainer. And then I took athletic training class mm-hmm. and we were learning about compound fractures and they described the bone coming out of the skin. And I said, you know, I can't run out on the field in the middle of a football game and see that and, and be able to handle that in that moment. That's just not who I am. Yeah. Okay. So athletic training is not the right direction. <laughs> so that shifted my thinking into physical therapy. And so I came home, I think it was after my sophomore or junior year. And I had an internship at University of Colorado, Denver physical therapy clinic, which was really eye-opening. I enjoyed interning there. And in that experience, I learned that that is also not the right fit for me mm-hmm. because it was difficult for me to be working with um, clients who just were really struggling with their injury and very negative and just had a poor attitude about it. And so a physical therapist has to do a lot of sort of cheerleading and motivating. And not that I don't have those skills, but I just realized this isn't what I want to do for a career. Mm-hmm. But in that experience, I noticed the difference in recovery times between people who had a very positive attitude when they were in the clinic and then also did their exercises at home regularly versus people who had a poor attitude and were not doing their exercises at home as prescribed. So that got me interested in the psychology of injury recovery and what are the factors that support someone to have a successful recovery versus someone who might not. So that shifted me into the world of sports psychology. And then I started looking at programs once I was 
out of Syracuse to see, you know, which direction did I want to go to study sports psychology. So in looking at programs across the country, a lot of them were clinically based mm -hmm. as opposed to applied. And there was one school in San Diego, San Diego University for Integrative Studies that was an applied program in sports counseling. And so that's the school I chose to attend and went there. I moved to San Diego about a year and a half after graduating college. I took some time off to, to work and to travel around South America and Central America after college before jumping into graduate nice. school. Yeah. Yes, it was excellent. You, are you well-versed enough? Because you're I know you're not a sports psychologist, so I don't want to put you in the spot. Are you well-versed enough in applied versus is clinical to share with folks why that matters? Like why you were like, you know, some of those are clinical, so I wasn't as interested in that. It's not applied. Sure, sure. So my understanding- I learned it like two, three years ago when I was also mm -hmm. looking into it. But I, I mean, if you ask me to tell you the difference, I could tell you my answer, but <laughs> I don't know if it's accurate. <laughs> My understanding of it was if I were going to go the more clinical route, then it meant that I would have a considerable amount of time that I would be spending in a clinical setting that was not going to be related to sports psychology. Right. It would be within the psychology arena, but I wouldn't directly be working in athletics. And mm -hmm. so when I found the more applied program, it felt like I could get into the sports world and doing work within that space faster than if I went to like University of Florida or Indiana had a clinical program, um, some of those other schools. So I decided that the one in San Diego was the one for me. Plus when you consider like, do I want to be in the swamp in Gainesville versus <laughs> the beach in San Diego? That yeah. one wasn't a very difficult choice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that my, or go ahead. No, no, go ahead. My school in San Diego, what I really appreciated about it is it, it was a general psychology program and then courses specific to sports psychology as well. So I felt like I got a really well-rounded education there. The professors were great. They were working and still are working within the field of sports psychology. It was a smaller school um, and of course in a beautiful location. So mm -hmm. it just felt like that was a better fit for me mm -hmm. in order to learn what I felt I needed to learn to pursue a career. Right. So, and so then I did you end up getting, cause then according, again, according to your LinkedIn, I'm, this is fun. I've never done this. Like just gone <laughs> down someone's LinkedIn. <laughs> um, you, you know, you become a, you know, performance training or is it consultant? And then, but you also have uh, like academic coach in there. Like, is that, was this because of the psychology focus you got into this kind of stuff? Yeah. So what, what became... ended up happening is I, after I, graduated from Syracuse. I had gone down there for one of, to New York City on one of my spring breaks and fell in love with New York City. And I, I looked for a sports psychology program in New York, there wasn't one. Right. So my plan was I'm gonna go to San Diego, I'm just gonna get through these classes. And then once I complete the coursework, I'm moving to New York City because that is just where my heart is telling me that it wants to be. So my plan was I will move to New York and complete my thesis while I'm in New York City. And so moving to New York and getting into the space as a consultant, I discovered that due to their laws, it was very limited what I could call myself legally. So mm. that's why I went with mental training consultant because I didn't have to have any certain like certifications or approvals from the state in order to operate in that capacity. 
-hmm. Because again, in order to get, uh, to call myself a sports psychologist, I needed X amount of hours of clinical experience working in a, a location that was not necessarily going to be related to sport. Right. So I went with the mental training consultants um, title instead, and then tried to work on that thesis from New York City. So I was working with the George Washington High School baseball team up in Wash Heights. A lot of people know it because that's where Manny Ramirez came out of. Mm -hmm. So one of the top programs in the country, I had very limited knowledge on baseball because we didn't get a baseball team, um, an MLB team in Denver until like 92. So it's just not a sport that I was raised on, but just being embedded with that team, learning about Dominican culture, uh, learning about the game itself and, and how much love they have for it. I just, I fell in love with the game and, and with that team. So it was a wonderful experience. You were a mental, like a mental skills coach for them? Yes, exactly. So what so kind of stuff were you doing? Year, First year, I just worked with one um, young man. I had, it's funny, my, my career, I would say it's, it's this consistent track record of synchronicities. Mm -hmm. So I had gone out on my own as a, a mental training consultant and I had just moved apartments in New York and I moved into a building that had one cable provider that, I mean, it was probably in like 10% of buildings in New York City, this cable provider. Everybody else had the other cable provider. And so this local commercial came on for Velocity Sports Performance, a training facility on the east side of the city. I saw the commercial and I thought, I'm going to call them up and see if maybe I can offer my services to their clients. And so they, they said, sure, come on over. You can come meet some of the athletes that train here and you, know, you can present to them and we can just see what happens. So one of the groups I presented to included a student who was training um, at that facility from the baseball team. Mm -hmm. And so he took my information back to the coach and said, coach, I'm interested in doing this. And the coach called me up and said, you know, I don't have a budget for this, but I would, he's, he'd love to work with you if you're interested. And I was just starting out in my career in that field. So of course I said, yes. Yeah. So I would take that train all the way up to Wash Heights and meet with him weekly. And we would work on just the mental game. Like what is the inner dialogue that he has when he's up at bat, when he's out in the field, you know, what are his beliefs about his abilities when he is performing on the field? Um, what sort mm -hmm. of focus does he have? Where is his brain when he's up at bat? Is it all over the place and paying attention to things that it shouldn't be? Or is it, you know, see the ball, hit the ball, where he's really focused on the task at hand. So, and he's a teenager as well. So of right. course, there's all sorts of things that come along that they're trying to sort out with that. So it, it was a counseling role in that capacity as well. And so it went really well with that young man that season. And so the following season, the coach asked if I could work with the entire team. Mm. And so I did that um, the next year as well, which was fantastic to just get to do team building and, and teach them about the mental side of the game. Because I mean, baseball, talk about a mental right. game when it comes to sports. So um, it was just one of the, the greatest experiences that I've ever had. And it wasn't paying. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, as much as I loved it, I knew that I needed to find something more consistent um, to pay my bills in New York City. <laughs> so yeah, really. 
Um, at this time, I was also seeing a sports psychologist, a clinical sports psychologist um, with a practice in New York for my supervision, just so that I could make sure that I was taking care of my clients well and, and then getting the support that I needed in my work. And she had recommended, I forget what the website was, or some sort of jobs list related to sports jobs. Mm -hmm. And so I was on there and I received an email that Abraham Lincoln High School out in Coney Island, Brooklyn, was looking for an academic coach who would be responsible for supporting the football team, basketball teams, um, softball team to, and baseball team to stay on track, um, eligible, graduating, qualifying for scholarships. And that was through the Play It Smart program Mm -hmm. which um, I believe is still in existence and they're in different schools around the, the country. So I ended up taking that position at Lincoln. I was able to still work with the GW team from time to time, but obviously <laughs> Coney Island and Washington Heights could not be further apart. <laughs> so yeah. the, that was a challenging commute when I did it. Um, it, but I worked at Lincoln and at that time, you know, one of the top basketball programs in the country. When I came in, Lance Stevenson was the number one sophomore in the nation. So it was a really interesting experience to come into such a high stakes, high level program and see how that all works in the fishbowl that is New York City basketball. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. um, I absolutely loved that job. I loved working with those young people and, and just getting to know more about how the NCAA works. You know, it was hours of sitting on hold with the NCAA sometimes trying to get these <laughs> classes qualified. Wow. But I really came to understand um, how that whole process works, right. which was not part of my upbringing. So that was a great learning experience for me. And of course, um, you know, I think we won four championships with the basketball team mm -hmm. uh, during the span. Um, well, they won four in a row and I was there for three of them. Right. So that was just amazing to see how that sort of level of basketball worked and then how the college game worked and dealing with recruiters and coaches and all that kind of stuff. So I um, absolutely loved working at Lincoln and unfortunately the, the funding ran out for that position. So I had to look for something new yeah. and I, I really gave myself a range of what I would look for, you know, education, nonprofit athletics really kind of spanned, um, a number of areas. And I had actually, um, this is an interesting story. So when I first moved to New York City, I was waiting tables because I'd worked at California Pizza Kitchen in Denver, in San Diego. So I knew I could move to New York and automatically have a job. And so one day I was, um, this was a two-story location, California Pizza Kitchen. So the majority of the tables are upstairs and then it's only two tops downstairs. And there were two servers on. I remember it was the middle of the holiday season. We're across from Bloomingdale's. It's crowded all the time. There's an hour wait to get a table. And um, so you just think about the dynamics of who's actually gonna get sat at my tables. And there was a guy uh, with his wife who was sat at one of my tables. He was from San Diego and he was just a curious person. And he said, why are you in New York? Do you wanna be an actor? And I said, no, actually I wanna work in um, professional athletics. I'd love to work in the NFL. 
And he said, oh, well, my friend works for the Giants. You should send me your resume. Oh, yes, I will do that. Like, this is it. This is it. So I sent him my resume. And at that point, I had the education, but I didn't have the experience yet. And he was honest with me about that. And he said, you know, just keep me um, in your in your back pocket. If down the line you need me, just continue to reach out. And so I think that was in 2004. And then I think 2008. I wanted to bring some sort of professional program into work with my students at Abraham Lincoln. And so I reached out to that customer again. Now his friend with the Giants is the treasurer of the Giants. So we're <laughs> quite high up there <laughs> with Almost the dish better family. than the coach. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so he connected me to him and then I was connected to community relations. And then I was connected to, it was player development at that mm. time. And that's how I was introduced to Charles Way, who was the player development director for the Giants. And he Mm -hmm. said, well, we have this program um, where it's called Giant Steps to Success. And the players will come in and and improvise, really perform scenarios that young people find themselves in and make poor decisions in those Mm -hmm. moments. And then towards the end, they'll freeze it and discuss, you know, what did you see? What sort of choices were made? What different choices could have been made? Um, so you talk that through with the, with the students and then they replay it again, making better choices. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he said, if it sounds like a good fit, you know, you can, we'll send a car for you, you can come out to the stadium and, and just watch and just, and see what you think of it. I'm like, okay, I yeah. can do that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Send a car. Yeah. So um, I went and I saw the program and I said, I think this will be great for them. And they came all the way to Coney Island and wow. performed the program. And so that's how I built that relationship with Charles. So when I was looking for a job, it took me a few months to think of it, but I emailed Charles and said, do you know of any jobs in athletics period? I didn't say, you know, do you have a job for me at the giants? I I really cast that wide net. And he replied and said, yes, there are three positions that opened up at the league office in player development. I said, great. Who do you know in human resources? Yeah because it's helpful to have a boost in these situations. And he said, I'm sorry, I don't know anyone because it's separate from league office to team. And so I thought, okay, what can I do to try and get through to the human resources department? And I reached back out to that customer that I had in 2004. Mm -hmm. And so he reached out to the treasurer on the giants who reached out to the vice president of human resources for the league office she emailed me and said, um, let me know when you submit your resume, I will pull it from the pile at that point, And then it has to stand on its own. So 200 people applied for two coordinator positions and I got one of them. Wow. That's from awesome. a customer I yeah. waited tables on. Did you keep in touch with that customer at all? Like in, in any capacity? Outside, past that point, I would keep him updated on right. my career and right. just sort of like what's going on, um, right. where I'm making Smart. moves to, and just to thank him. And because continually, I just see that as such a pivotal mm-hmm. moment and, and relationship in my life. And then I, I got an like prior, like in the time that you met him and then the time that you reached out to say, can you, I'm, I'm interviewing for this job. Did you keep in touch with him during that point of updating him? I don't recall if in between meeting him and then trying to bring in a professional yeah. sports team to Lincoln, yeah. if there was much interaction, I think there might've been, but specifically I can't. The only reason I ask is because I think number one, it's, it's, you know, 
obviously if some people do, that's cool. But like, I've heard, I feel like I read in a book, there's a book about like mentorship I read years ago that was like, keep in touch with people like an instance like that. And I've had a lot of moments where doing the cups of coffee, where I sit there and I'm like, well, what am I, how am I going to keep in touch with this person without being annoying? And, <laughs> and, and what I've found is it's good to do like, you know, updating them on, on how you're doing is good. People are interested. Um, and if they're not interested, they're not going to be helpful anyways. And, and, uh, and the other side of things is you don't always have to, like, you can't just ghost somebody, but like, I think if someone is, if people remember interactions, so, mm -hmm. you know, I, I find a lot of people stressing out about young people will kind of overdo the, the handwritten note thing and overdo the calling and texting and all of that's good. Like I teach people to do that stuff, but it can be overdone when it's, when you can, like, you can feel this sense of like, I just got to keep in touch with these people. Cause I read it in a book and, and, in the end of the day, it's a lot of stuff like this, where this guy clearly from his interaction with you just at the, the restaurant was happy to, to even, and a lot of times too, cause it's not like it's that much skin in the game for him. He's just simply saying, Hey, like they said, we pulled yours out and it still has to stand on its own, but mm -hmm. pulling it out is, is all that you needed uh, really, you know, to that. And then you still had to be qualified, you know, and, and rise above right. the applicants, you know? Right. And that's, that's the thing too. Like I, if I didn't feel I was qualified for the position, I would have never asked him right. for his help to get into human resources, but I knew I had the qualifications first. And then I felt comfortable asking for, you know, a little bit of a boost. If How I did thought. you identify when you said he, he said to you, what do you want to be an actor? And you said, no, I really want to work. And you specifically said the NFL. How did you identify the NFL as like a place that would be a good fit for you? I think it ties back to just being born and raised in Denver and being, you know, a huge Denver Broncos fan okay. and an NFL fan in general. And so I think because that was the sport that I was the closest to and knew the most about, I felt like that would be the good place for a good fit for me. Yeah. You know, at that point, I didn't know anything about baseball. I hadn't worked um, intensely with a basketball team. And so I think just my knowledge of that game is what drew me to the yeah. NFL. And I feel like as well, I think in my program at San Diego, um, there were close, there was work that we did um, tied to football. I had a practicum um, where I worked a little bit with a San Diego charger. So I also felt like I had a little bit more experience in that space as well. Yeah. Well, the only reason I ask is because I I think the NFL does a great, and I didn't know this until getting into it. They do a really great job with their player development and player engagement. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that's where we've gotten, I guess, just talk about that. What, so what job did you get and what, what were you doing with the NFL? So I was a coordinator in the player development department. Um, that's what it was at the time. Uh, I think about three months after I was I started there, Troy Vincent came in to lead the department. And that's when there was the rebrand to player engagement so that mm. it would be sort of more all encompassing in terms of what they were offering. And so there were two coordinators and they split 32 teams between the two of us. So I was essentially a liaison between my 16 teams and the league office. So if there was programming that we needed to pump out to the teams, I was responsible for sending that information. I was responsible for doing um, checks, um, certifying that a, a player had actually graduated. Cause sometimes they'll say like, oh yeah, I graduated. And then when you actually check that with the university we might be a class short. <laughs> so just mm -hmm. 
working to make sure that, that that was accurate. And then if it wasn't, we would work with the education consultants to develop a plan for that player if they wanted to complete their degree. Uh, did they wanna do that in the city they were playing in? Did they want to complete that degree physically at the college um, where they had been attending? Did they want to try another school and transfer credits in? So there were a lot of different um, options that they were given to try and complete that degree. Um, I was responsible for identifying potential internships for players. So either we were sort of brainstorming what we thought players might be interested in and developing um, relationships with companies and organizations to, to create an internship, or a player could say, you know, I'm going to be in Miami in the off season and I would love to have an internship in real estate. And so with that specific ask, then you try and locate a real estate company within the Miami area who would be willing to host an intern. Wow. I didn't or, know players yeah. did internships. Have, they do. They absolutely yeah. do internships. Yes. Yeah. That, and that was one of the, I loved that part. They, they just call me and say, here's where I'm going to be. Here's what I want to do. Can you help me out? Uh, yeah. So that was a really enjoyable part of the job. And then of course, there's the specific boot camps that the NFL has as well, which have really grown over the years. Mm -hmm. um, when I was there, it was largely the broadcast boot camp. So for players who were interested in having a broadcasting career in the future, and then the financial education boot camps, and those were mm -hmm. partnerships with Harvard and Wharton, you know, really top notch. Um, and then we also had career transition programming. We had financial education. We had life skills. We worked with the clinician. So it was really, it's wraparound services and it's, it's trying to help guys really take advantage of these things while you're playing instead mm -hmm. of waiting until you are no longer on a roster because you have to leverage that while you're playing because it's not as appealing, unfortunately, to a lot of companies once a player is no longer on an active roster, unless you're a big marquee name. Right. But companies, you know, it was the easiest part of my job to call a company and say like, Hey, I have an NFL player who's interested in interning at your company. Like it was always a yes. Right. Right. <laughs> so, um, but I think that's also where I started to really see, I wondered what's, what's the breakdown here where there's all these opportunities available to you and players aren't taking advantage of it in the numbers that we would have liked to have seen them take advantage. Mm -hmm. So I feel like where, what was missing there was a developmental piece as a human being of just not being developed yet to the point where you felt like I can take advantage of this opportunity or I'm ready to take advantage of this opportunity. Mm -hmm. You know, the excuse was often given like, well, I'm just so focused on football and that's all I have the capacity for right now. And so that's just what I'm going to do. Um, when the reality is you, you create space for, for what's important to you. And I think over time, players have really started to recognize, like, I have to leverage this while I'm on an active roster. And there is time in my world to learn more about these things. And I'm going to say yes to these opportunities. But I think for a lot of players, it can be challenging to say yes to these things because they might not think they can handle it or they're capable or a lot of them were kind of pushed along in school um, mm. and, and didn't necessarily master being a great student. And so why would I take the, the leap to try this financial boot camp at the University of Pennsylvania? Like right. that's, that's a really intimidating idea when the reality is that you will be supported 
throughout these opportunities if you'll just say yes to them. So that's mm -hmm. where I really felt like when I was back out on my own in Denver, here's a space that I can work in is to try and support athletes to develop a mindset where they feel like they can say yes. And which is the improv principle mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to things that are offered to me so that I can continue learning and growing and developing and be more prepared for that transition out of the game, which is the only guarantee in sports. The yeah. only thing you can count on is there will be a day when you won't be able to play anymore. Right. Well, and I, I always, you know, even a guy like Tom Brady, who is in his forties and seen as like this ancient guy who's still playing, he's in his forties. Like I always say that about, you know, LeBron is, is in his late thirties and it's like, everyone's like, you know, oh man, he's almost done. And so if, if the most you can hope for is potentially retiring and that's, you know, in your, that's if you're a quarterback or, or, or like a basketball player, like a non-contact position is hopefully mm -hmm. retiring in your mid to late thirties, then I don't care how good you are. You got to have a plan for, for after this. Um, one, one, so it's funny you mentioned yes. And I've noticed you practice what you preach throughout your entire story you, without <laughs> like where, where the word, but would usually be, you're like, and you know, <laughs> it didn't work out. Uh, <laughs> I didn't like sports psychology. Uh, so, um, so let's get into that. Cause I, I took down a bunch of notes uh, about like from your website on the, mm -hmm. on your, your principles and, and kind of your, your value on, on play and how that's the most powerful way to learn. Yes. And, and so let's, I'd love to just jump into that. So um, talk about improv alchemy and, and how that came about. Absolutely. So improv was not something that I grew up with outside of watching whose line is it anyways. Yeah, same. Um, I was introduced to the idea of improv as a team development tool from that uh, sports psychologist that I was getting supervision from. So I was looking for ways to develop the team, the George Washington baseball team, and she suggested improv. And so I thought, okay, that's something I can give a try. And actually before I worked with them using improv, I worked with the uh, borough of Manhattan community college um, coaches soccer team, and it was a, a girls team. And so we did one workshop and I think, I don't know, it was 45 minutes or an hour. And he emailed me afterwards and said, I have never seen them play as fluidly as they did after our workshop. Wow. Like that was, that was top. So I was like, oh, this works. <laughs> that's yeah, great. Yeah. That's a great way to put it too. play as fluidly as they did. I, I, I don't think I've ever heard that as like a mm -hmm. way to describe a team playing. Yeah. Right. I mean, and we're communicating now, we're paying attention to each other, we're, we're building on the passes, mm -hmm. which is building on the offers and improv. So that opened my eyes to the power of this tool. And I also had the opportunity to experience improv myself volunteering for the All Stars Project, which is was originated in New York City. So they've got a beautiful facility on 42nd Street. Now they've spread out to other areas of the country as well as the globe with different branches, um, but I was introduced to them from that same sports psychologist. And 
I did improv as a volunteer at their talent shows. So they have the All-Stars Talent Show Network. They do them in different boroughs throughout the year, and they specifically target young people who are coming from communities that don't have as many opportunities for development because they just they don't have the same resources as more affluent communities. So these talent shows were born out of, you know, street teams back in the, I think this it was 30 some years ago. So All Stars Project went out into the community and rather than saying, here's this thing that we're gonna bring to you that you should do, they said, what does the community want? What does the community need? And to their surprise, the community said, talent shows would be great. So that's how it started. And so I volunteered at the talent show in order to build the group of volunteers to prepare for the day, we did improv games. Mm. I was like, oh, this is really fun. I enjoy this and I, I feel the connection and I, it's fun to kind of step out of my comfort zone and, and try these different things. So uh, that's how I got interested in improv for myself. Before I left New York City, I did a training at the Magnet Theater, which is still there um, down by Madison Square Garden. So I did a number of classes, I think it's six or eight weeks of classes. And then we had a show that mm -hmm. was absolutely terrifying <laughs> and exhilarating. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So I knew I had to, to make sure that I was still studying improv and learning how to do it well. At least you're in New York, so no like family or friends from growing up could come. I don't know if that's a, if that was a, <laughs> a real thing. Well, <laughs> my mother actually did come okay. and a couple of friends. So my mom um, has long volunteered with an organization called Young Audiences and they always have meetings in April in New York and the, it just aligned oh, with my funny. show. The, so she was there. The, <laughs> yeah. the one time, I think I told you this when we talked on the phone, I did years ago sign up for an improv class and then wasn't able to finish it because my travel schedule just didn't allow it. And I mm -hmm. was kind of hopeful when I signed up, like, ah, I mean, I, it was one of those things where I like passively signed up, right? Like I was like, ah, we'll see how many I can go to, not realizing it built to a show. And right. once I realized that, I was like, ah, this is just a waste of time because I'm missing so many of them. And when I first realized it built to a show and I, I again, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I'm a public speaker as a profession. Like I speak and train. So clearly I don't have stage fright, but I do have this thing with like, I was, I, so I was in Baltimore and my family was in New York still. And part of me was like, I think I'm just not going to tell anybody about this. Like, this is just going to be my own thing. I don't want anyone coming down for this show, uh, but it didn't happen anyway. So I didn't have to deal with it. <laughs> It's, it's a great hurdle to get past. Um, I know. I, I definitely would have been convinced terrifying. to, and I'm sure I would have been convinced to invite them, but yeah. I didn't want to. Yeah. <laughs> so that's where I really got my foundation of improv training. I continued that when I got back to Denver um, and trained with a couple of different places here, which also included, you know, one program, it was five levels of classes and after each level of class you had there was a student showcase with the fifth level our whole group had to um, put on an entire production of a show and so we did the real world um, the voodoo theater was the name of that theater at the time so we did a play on the real world from mtv and we mm -hmm. were 11 strangers picked to live in a house and have our lives improvised yeah and so that show was a little bit different because we were the same character each week. 
Okay. And there was a through line, you know, if you came to every show, you saw the development of our characters and our relationships and where that led. And if you just came to one, it was still inter entertaining and funny. Right. Uh, but I got some great training through that program. And then I decided I'd been at that point, I was working in education here in Denver again. It was a pre-collegiate program, not student athletes this time, um, but just first generation college students where they right. would be. And this was so after the NFL. This was after the NFL, right. okay. um, which, you know, I loved the NFL. I loved Troy Vincent as a boss. Um, he's still the top boss I've ever had. And I recognized that corporate environment is just not for me. Yeah. Right? Well, it was funny. That was going to be one of my questions. I didn't ask it because just out of sake of like, oh, I want to get to the principles mm -hmm. of improv. But mm -hmm. one of my questions, as you were explaining the NFL job, I was going to ask, like, it doesn't it sounds awesome. And it's the NFL, you know, all the good things about it. And it's not exactly, I mean, heck that job working with that baseball team in New York sounded more on par with like what you sought out to do as a sports psychologist. And, and I, I find that too, you know, we, when I first met Harry, who you and I both know, he was really good about explaining that to me because he was like you know why are you interested in working with the ravens and i gave all my reasons and he was like well then shouldn't you be just as excited to work with like the local county football team and i was like yeah it's a really good point and and yes. and since then is when i've gotten more involved with that's why i've gotten more involved with youth sports if mm -hmm. people pay attention to my instagram and they see how much i coach now it's because of that meeting with harry and he's been a hundred percent right i mean i love everything i'm doing right now with youth sports and i never would have gotten into it three years ago um, mm -hmm. because i saw it as not aligned with the career that i wanted so mm -hmm. it is interesting you know you get to the nfl and it's it's just it's not bad like you said it's just it's it's different. It's different than those other it's, environments. Right. And it's where I learned that what I truly enjoy is direct service. Mm, exactly. Yeah. It, it is rewarding for me to develop an internship that you learn a lot from and, um, you know, you grow in that capacity, but I like working directly with the athlete. And so I knew that I wanted to get that that space was, was something I preferred over being in a corporate office, writing emails, creating reports like that, right. that kind of stuff. Right. Um, so Troy was actually the one that helped to, to walk me through that process of, of where should I go? Where should I be? And, and it's another actual story of synchronicity. So Troy is one of the most intuitive people I've ever met in my life. And um, he could see that I was struggling. I was still trying to write my thesis for that school in San Diego. And I was staying a little bit late one day after work, trying to work on it. We left together. He could just read on my face that I was stressed out. And he said, all right, well, let's let's meet tomorrow morning, come into my office and let's just kind of talk through some things. And so we met and he helped me see that, um, you know, the, the, I, I love the school I went to, however, it is only accredited within the state of California. And so even if I finished the thesis, it really didn't move the needle for me. Mm -hmm. And here I am, I'm already working at the NFL. I've already worked as a private consultant do I really need to go through the stress that I'm going through in order to get this thesis completed? And so through that conversation, you know, I discovered like, this is not as crucial as I thought it was. There's actually pressures coming from other places in my life that I need to finish this, um, mm -hmm. not necessarily for me. And then, um, he said, you know, he'd had an opportunity to meet some of the football players that I worked with at Lincoln 
And so he recognized what I meant to them and what they meant to me. And he said, um, you know, you don't want to be the person in the corner of the, the meeting taking notes. You want to be at the table. And I said, that's wow. absolutely right. And um, I had been supporting him at that point on an education in initiative that he was working on with Tony Dungy, uh, Ray Lewis, Jim Brown, with the idea being, we've got too many young men of color who are dropping out and that ultimately that can impact um, the, the pool of NFL talent. And it's within the NFL's interest to support these young men to be able to remain in school, remain eligible and, and have more opportunity to play at the next level and be successful in their lives. So I was coordinating the meetings and communications around that. So there was a national dropout prevention network conference in Philly. And he said, do you want to go to this with me? And yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So went down to that conference. There was a presenter from Denver Public Schools on um, a session. And so I went to that session and I met someone there who was in the education consulting business. And he was just curious about like, what is the NFL doing at this conference? Yeah. Yeah. And so I explained it to him and I said, I'm also trying to get back to Denver. And it looks like, you know, I'm going to have to go into teaching in order to do that. And he said, well, I don't, I don't think that's necessarily true. I know someone who has a great program that was much more aligned with what I'd been doing already at Lincoln previously. And so that introduction, um, I flew home for uh, the weekend and had a meeting with the executive director of that program. And he was basically like, you're willing to leave the NFL to come work in education? Like mm -hmm. you're hired. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, we're just waiting on the federal grant to come through, but right. you're hired. So right. that again, synchronicity, that going to that conference and getting that introduction. And then this introduction led me to the position that I had with the gear up program here in Denver. Yeah. Um, Are you still... Again, in that, or the gear up program, is that still something you're a part of, or that was a short bit? I think I was there for about two and a half years okay. and, um, it got to a point where I, there was a position that had opened up at the collegiate level, same program, but you would now be supporting students just at the college level. And so I applied for that and made it into the, you know, the pool of, of people to be interviewed and had just reached a point a crossroads were like, all right, if I get this job, I'll accept it. If I don't, that is the indication that it's time for me to go back out on my own and have my own business again. Cause mm. I wanted more freedom. I wanted more flexibility. I felt like I still had something to give in terms of supporting athletes. And so, uh, I did not get the position. There were people that seniority wise were just ahead of me, which yeah. was totally fine, but that, Higher education, that like, right. you should have got, you should have wrote that thesis. You would have got that. <laughs> 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 so I was like, all right, this is the, this is the sign and it's yeah. time for me to, to go back out and, and pursue, you know, my dream of really having a successful business here. And I also felt like if this is something I've dreamed of, of doing and I don't go for it, what am I telling my students? Mm. What message does that mm. send? And so when I communicated it that way, that was my reasoning for leaving. They, they completely understood and respected it. Yeah. They were sad. I was sad, but they, they got it. Yeah. 
Um, so I went back out on my own and I knew I wanted improv to be my tool that I was using in, in various capacities. I knew that I still had some more to give around, um, supporting athletes and their development as human beings. So I created a program and sent it to about five teams that I had uh, been their direct contact for as a coordinator that I felt like I had a good relationship with and that I felt probably had the culture to bring in something like improv for athlete mm -hmm. development. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Ravens were one of those teams and Harry. Mm -hmm. So I sent it to Harry and he replied and, and said, let's, let's get on the phone. And I'm sure you probably went through this as well. Yeah. Put me through the ringer for a good, you know, 30 to 40 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then said yes and hired me. Yeah. So that was my first NFL He's a team. great screener of people. I remember getting oh, off my yeah. first, phone, first phone call with him and my wife was like, how'd that go? I was like, I don't know. Like, I don't know if he doesn't <laughs> trust me. I don't know if he does. Cause it was also my first like experience with someone in the NFL. So I like didn't, wasn't appreciating how guarded they can be too, to make sure we got yes. the right people coming in here. And then, and then he re, like sent me an email of like, Hey, why don't you come down to the facility? And I was like, I didn't expect that as the next <laughs> message. <Exactly. laughs> right. Yeah. Right. So I appreciate yeah. the ringer. So what type of work, talk about the work you did with them. I think it's fascinating. Yeah. So, uh, he brought me out, gosh, I think that was like six years ago. Um, I believe this would be, this will be my sixth season, uh, working with the Ravens. So <clears throat> what I really appreciated about, um, what he did without my suggesting it, it just didn't cross my mind. I don't think, but he said, I think we should do this off site and that we should get a theater space. Mm. And so he was able to secure the Hippodrome theater down in Baltimore. And we took a bus from Owings Mills down into Baltimore for our workshop. And um, it was just, it was amazing to watch their faces as they walk out onto the stage. It's a very ornate, beautiful theater. And I think it's quite possible for a number of those players, they'd never been in a mm -hmm. formal theater like that. And so when you do a workshop on a stage like that, as opposed to in the facility, in the team facility, they just show up different. All of us are gonna show up a little bit differently when we're on a formal stage, as opposed to just being in, in a random training room. So um, I put them through a number of just introductory improv games that were designed to help connect and build the, build the team. Um, and Harry brought me in towards the end of the rookie programming. So they, they'd been together for a number of weeks and they were preparing to go home for the first time since mm -hmm. being at the facility. And so what they could expect when they go home now are a lot of requests and a lot of demands for things, for money, for time, um, just because now you're in the NFL and, and there's often this misperception that, oh, that means like now you've got millions of dollars and um, you can help me out with this or, you know, I supported you to this point. And so I need you to do this for me. There's, there's so many asks that can come. And mm -hmm. so they needed to build a mindset that where they felt like they could handle these things mm -hmm. and be able to be responsive in that moment um, and take care of themselves and protect themselves. So we really built on exercises that were supporting responsiveness and supporting them to be agile in those moments. And also helping them to, to you know, just step out of their comfort zones. Mm -hmm. And what I didn't 
know was going to be, and this is often what happens in improv. We have a goal or, or an idea in mind of what we want to get out of the session. And those things happen. And then every single time there's also these other like magical things that happen from a session that I just never anticipate. So one thing that Harry pointed out to me after that session was that it was very valuable for him to be there. Uh, their psychologist, their clinician was there as well. I think the chaplain was there and they come every year now, but being able to observe players in that space reveals natural tendencies. Improv will bring out your natural tendencies. And a lot of our natural tendencies don't really support us to where we want to go. So it's something that you can address with them later on. Just like, you know, I saw this in this game and I was wondering, you know, what you think about this or, or what was behind that. So it, it gave him a lot of um, starting points for conversations past the improv session. Mm -hmm. So it is a way to get to know your players um, in a different way. And there's also a real blessing in that a player who's showing up a certain way for a number of weeks, when you put them in an improv game, they're going to show you other sides that they just didn't have the environment where they felt comfortable to bring that out. Mm -hmm. So I remember the following year I was with the Seahawks and we finished the session and, um, Mo Kelly said to me, he's like, I, that guy hasn't said anything for three weeks. And now he's initiating scenes. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. So it's, this is the power, part of the power of improv is that in order for people to grow and develop and learn as human beings, you have to create that environment. It doesn't just happen. Mm -hmm. And through improv, you collectively work together to create the environment where people can be courageous, where they can step out of their comfort zone, where they can be vulnerable and you're having a blast doing it. So you don't even realize what's going on, mm -hmm. but at the end of it, you feel like you've, you've grown, like you've performed a head taller than you normally would in other situations. And when you recognize like I can do that through a silly improv game, it becomes more comfortable when you're in a real life scenario that mm. requires you to be agile and responsive or listening or communicating well. So it's improv is like this little mind gym mm -hmm. where we can work on these muscles. And as we do it in that space, it transfers to other spaces yeah. as well. And is that why, you know, I love the line that you have of, about how play is the you know, I'm, I'm butchering it. You said it better, but like the most powerful way to learn. And, and is that it for you? It's about just opening people up. It's about creating, I love how you talk about just creating that environment that allows them to create and push the limits and the boundaries and kind of teach themselves almost. Absolutely. And, and when we reflect on how we learned growing up, or if you are around little kids, they play all the time. And they learn so rapidly in part because they're playing all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, make believe comes very natural, natural to them. Improvising is very natural to them. They can take whatever objects they have around them and create a whole story um, with those tools. And so it's something that we do very naturally as, as young children. And then we learn very rapidly somewhere along the line. I think we start getting the message that you need to take life more seriously. Play is silly. Um, you're too old for this. And I just really push back against that. I think we're in a play deficit. 
mm-hmm. in this country. I think that we we overly focus on work, 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 work. And I think that's detrimental to our mental health. It's detrimental to our relationships, um, our emotional health. We need to play more and play is the foundation of creativity, of innovation. Um, like this is how we actually advance as a society mm-hmm. by playing more. So the opposite um, of play is not work. It's actually depression. Mm. So it's crucial that we have more play in our lives. Mm. And if we can continue to learn through playing throughout our lifetime, I just think we're going to have more fun and we're going to get a lot farther, not only in creativity and innovation, but be able to build relationships because you just discover different things about people when you're playing. And that's been, I think, a real blessing, if you will, of the pandemic is that the value of what I bring to the table and what improv brings to the table has expanded Mm -hmm. because everybody's on Zoom um, or Google Meets and and we're distant. We can't be together. And and it's a drag after just being in virtual meetings all the time. And so if you can switch that up and just do a session of improv playing, you learn so much about your coworkers that you didn't know before. You feel right. connected. You, you see where you think the same, where maybe you grew up the same, um, you know, how you can, can build with each other, communicate better. So, you know, thankfully people have really recognized the value of my work during this time period. And I've still been able to um, adjust and, and, give the joy of improv to people to help them connect and, and have a better experience with these online meetings zoom fatigue is real. So oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> so, so what I think is interesting too, is, you know, in my experience in sport, uh, particularly with male sports, like I've actually worked with more women's sports, um, unintentionally. I, you know, when I first started my business, I marketed to anybody that called themselves an athlete. Like it was just like, <laughs> like we gotta, we gotta get something here. Yes. And, and we found that, um, in, in my time, I've had one male, male team that I've worked with other than that. It's been female teams sometimes, many times, actually more often than not coached by men, but female teams. And, and, I don't have, no one's ever given me an honest reason. Like I'll ask people like, you know, why do you think that is? But um, my perception is what I offer uh, is I think some of the male coaches look at it and think, ah, like my guys wouldn't want to do this. Right. Or, or resonate (laughs) with it. And, and so what, I guess, what challenges have you faced with, you know, bringing this, this, what, what you're describing sounds great. And if the average listener thinks of the NFL team that they root for, I'd love you to picture those rookies doing what you're talking about. <laughs> so what, right. are, what are some of the challenges you run into with this? Well, I would, I would say in terms of the fans, um, there was, I think it was year two with the Ravens. They did an article on their website about the the work and the workshop and, and improv and, you know, <laughs> just don't read the comments, but I did, <laughs> and, you know, fans are like, this is such a waste of time and this is ridiculous. And, but they didn't understand that there's actually like a philosophy and a methodology right behind this. So I think they also don't understand. And I'm, I'm projecting because this is what I didn't understand. I, I got it, but I didn't fully get it. And you and I talked Mm -hmm. about this on the phone. Um, this happened to me when I started working with division one athletics too. I would, I had 
I would meet with these athletes and there's this assumption of their mentality, their confidence, their, their, their own story. They might tell themselves what we see on the court or the field on TV. And mm-hmm. then you meet with them in person. And it's like, this is an 18, 19, 20 year old kid. Yes. Period. That's it. And they're not always the most confident. They're not always the most like elite driven. Uh, some of the best athletes I've ever met don't care if they, or at least they, maybe they care internally, but they don't want to admit that they care about winning and being a professional. Like, you know, like they've got like they, they've just because they're really good athlete doesn't mean quite frankly, anything else. And mm-hmm. the same is true in my experience even with, with professional athletes. Um, and so this notion that, you know, playing improv games with these athletes is a waste of time. I think too, comes from a place of people just not understanding what we see on TV is a really glorified version of who these folks are. And I'm not putting them yeah. down. I'm humanizing them. They're human. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You know, there's so much time and, and effort and hours and energy, not only from the athlete, but the people around them that it is invested in developing them as an athlete. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. why they are an elite athlete. But often that comes to the detriment of developing other aspects of yourself that are mm-hmm. important to be developed to be successful in the real world. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, the NFL and in professional sports in general, like it, it's its own bubble. Mm-hmm. It is not reality. Um, and so when you get out there and you're trying to find a job and get into the, the working world when you're retired, like that's, it's a huge slap in the face mm-hmm. to a lot of professional athletes. It's a huge slap in the face to a lot of veterans too. It's the same situation where like for the majority of or whatever time period it is, you've been told when to be somewhere, what time you're eating, what time the meeting starts, what time the meeting ends. Like you've had everything scheduled out. And then all of a sudden you're no longer in the military or you're no longer on a team. And it's like, here's this entire day in front of you. What am I going to do with myself? Um, And so I think people definitely don't understand that athletic transition piece and how challenging that can be for an athlete to go from playing to um, not playing anymore. And and it depends on what are the circumstances around that? Mm -hmm. Why aren't you playing anymore? Um, So I think, yeah, humanizing players is what's so important here. And um, that is the work that, that I really love to do. And that's what I think improv it's another piece of the power of improv is in that space. It really humanizes everyone and it humanizes people in a way where those, the status, the titles, all of that is out the window mm-hmm. because if I have the players and then I bring in, let's say like the head coach, it doesn't matter really that you're the head coach when we're playing, you know, past the clap around the circle. <laughs> um, what matters is can you synchronize a clap? And right. so it, it humanizes those people as well that, that often are put on a pedestal. And then we just kind of see like at the end of the day, we are really similar and we all, we all have similar goals in mind and similar desires. So I I love the way it really evens things out and humanizes everybody in the space. Yeah. I did it. When I first started years ago, I did a, uh, I did a team building program with a construction crew. It was like one, it wasn't just me. It was a hundred construction workers and we each got our own like group of 12 to 15. And, and I was I was like 23, 24. So I didn't really fully understand 
what, like the value of what I was doing. I had been trained by this company to facilitate these activities. And so I'm facilitating this one activity. It was similar to like pass the clap. And, and the, I guess the foreman, I don't know anything about construction. Like the guy in charge uh, was having the hardest time with it. And the rest of the guys started laughing their heads off. And at first he was kind of annoyed by it. And again, I was young, so I didn't do anything. I was just like, keep playing. uh, But it worked out because he eventually started to laugh at himself. And in the debrief, you know, that the owner of the company, we, he would do a debrief with the whole group and everything like that. And like, you know, especially for like a corporate group, like really like we write down, here's your takeaways and stuff. And the, the guy in charge said, um, that's the first time I let my guard down in front of these guys. And I know they, he said like, he wanted to, he was like, I know they want me to, I just didn't know how. And the, and the other employees were saying like, that was the best part of the day was just laughing with him about how because it's it's not like it's you're laughing at him it's a game it's a silly game that he was just having a really hard time with and and i think even that was humanizing to watch him have a hard time at something because that probably doesn't happen yeah absolutely and in and in these games like it's very low stakes yes and so again you've created that environment where my vulnerability can come out Mm-hmm. where I can take some risks, where I can be a little bit courageous. I don't understand in the moment that's what's happening, right. um, but I'm walking through that process. And as I go through that one, I'm growing and developing as a human being, and I'm growing and developing relationships with the other people that are in this space through play, through laughter. Um, I mean, that, that is how relationships are often built mm-hmm. is through play and, and laughter. So I think we just, we need to incorporate more of this into our worlds. And um, I think <clears throat> I recognized this when I was putting my presentation together for the um, PADS summit a couple of years ago. And I was fortunate enough where they had me come present at the summit. And then they also had me facilitate mm-hmm. the summit as well. So we did improv um, consistently throughout the summit, which was fantastic. Um, with the, the goal, number one, like these are people coming from all over the globe from the athlete development space. And so how do we quickly build the group mm-hmm. and the fastest way to do it is play and improv. So that mm-hmm. was part of the motivation of bringing me in to actually facilitate the conference was to just uh, accelerate that, um, group building. But I was, I recognized that I think the process of development is consistently moving through the space, you may have seen the graphic out there before, but um, it's got four zones and it's your comfort zone, fear zone, uh, learning zone, growth zone. Mm-hmm. And improv is that process just kind of over and over again. And so it's great to be in your comfort zone. That feels good. We want to be there um, from time to time. The question is when an opportunity presents itself and we move into that fear zone, do we then use that fear as uh, a motivator to retreat or do we use that fear as a motivator to push forward mm-hmm. and i think through improv you you know often when i'm in a workshop and i'm like we're gonna do improv there's people that are like oh no i'm terrified <laughs> no, <we're> like, not. <laughs> like, i'm not wayne brady and so i right. always have to clarify whose line is it anyways wild and out those are forms of improv those are specific comedic forms of improv this conversation you and I are having right now is improvised. Mm -hmm. I don't have a script. You don't have a script. 
the majority of our life is improvised. We are making it up as we go along. So when I can reframe it for people that it's, it's making it up as you go along, it's building and creating with whatever you have available to you, they often recognize they're much better improvisers than they thought, particularly mm-hmm. people who had very limited resources growing up. Talk about being able to improvise because you had to just make do with what you had. So that reframe helps people get a little bit more comfortable with the idea of doing improv. And then, you know, we warm up with very simple games and they're like, oh, I can do this. Oh, I'm laughing and I'm having fun. Like I actually really enjoy this. And so that's when you can use that fear to actually push forward. And through an improv game, you're learning, you know, how to, how to do the game well, how to work with others, how to listen, how to communicate. And then through that process, you move into the growth zone. So I love that, that improv to me, and this is what I shared at the summit. I think it's the fastest way, the biggest bang for your buck to really move through that process in a safe way that allows people. And this is, I think, particularly important for men to be vulnerable which is, that starts with courage. It takes courage to step into the space of vulnerability. And so that is what's happening through improv. I don't verbalize that. I don't say that necessarily to them um, because the second you bring up the word vulnerability, some people panic about that. Um, But I realize like this is actually what's happening. And that's part of the power of improv is it's, it's walking through that comfort zone to fear zone, to learning zone, to growth zone. And that is the process of development. But again, we've collectively created the space where we can do this work together. So we're all in the same boat and we're all supporting each other to do this. And that's, that's part of the magic of it. I mean, I think in all my improv workshops I've ever done over the years, I've had less than five people who just aren't into it. And, you know, one was a a teacher and they just were an an older teacher and just very set in their ways and and just weren't into it. But when I talked to the principal after the workshop, she said, you know, that that performance, if you will, that they gave in the workshop is how they always are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, again, it's it's a point where you can that's a conversation you could have with that teacher uh, of noticing that pattern of behavior that they're probably not aware of, but keeps coming out in improv games. So there's always, you know, these little invitations that you can take based on what happens in the workshop and then continue to, to build with it and work with it. Yeah. It's the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, How do people, how do people reach out to you, find you if they're interested, if there's coaches listening that are interested in, in, in what you do and offer uh, or anything, how do they find you? Yeah, absolutely. I'd say the best way to reach me is through my website, www.improvalchemy.com, or my email address is simply Lainey, L-A-I-N-I-E, at improvalchemy.com. I'm Improv Alchemy on social media. I only have on Facebook and Instagram. You can find me there. And I'm more than happy to, to share more of the power of this work because I, I, someone might be listening to this and is still maybe not so sure. Um, so I'm happy to expand on it more. 
And I just really hope to have more opportunities to bring the power of improv to more people. Thank so you. my last, oh God, did you have something you want to say on that? I don't no, want to care. Oh, all right. Uh, I'll ask my last question, uh, which I think you've answered like six times, which is really cool, uh, which is just the 50 cups of coffee. I always like to know from a guest, do you have a, what I call a cool or just a 50 cups of coffee story, which is simply uh, a story of a connection or an interaction. Quite frankly, the, the story of, of, the the guy in the california pizza kitchen right like that's a great 50 cups of coffee story so if you don't have another one i'll just edit this well but uh if you have another one of just you know how a connection or a conversation or an interaction um served you meant something to you change in any way yeah go ahead yeah i a recent one well again it's it's another one that's built over time so i think the first pad summit that i attended was at uh, hosted at major league baseball i want to say it was 2014 and um at that time i was out on my own and so my colleague former colleague from the nfl suggested i go attend this summit and so at that summit um i met someone who was working in a mental training um, capacity with the Grizzlies, I believe it was. And at that point in time, Lance, my former student was on the team. So that's how I struck up the conversation um, with Eric Burks. Um, that was, he's the consultant that was working with them. And he was just interested in my work and thought it was powerful and, and interesting. And um, so we stayed in touch past that point. And he was always trying to incorporate me into um, the programming for the teams that he was working with. And it just, you know, I always tell people, if you want to work in sports and you can't operate by hurry up and wait, hmm. then you should not work in sports. <laughs> so, um, That's really good. <laughs> year after year after year, we were trying to get this through and it just, nothing was, was quite coming through. And then he reached out to me in December, or I think it was November and said like, Hey, um, you're still doing the, the improv work, right? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. And he's like, well, I'm going to connect you with this team, uh, G League Ignite. It's a developmental team that the NBA just started this year. Um, I'm going to connect you with their player development person so you guys can talk. And so I had a call with Nakia Marks, who is the player development um, in that position for G League Ignite. And she had done some improv training in a corporate space before that she just really loved. And she was having a conversation with Eric about like, I would really love to do improv with these guys. And he's like, oh, I've got the person for you. Yeah. And so made that introduction and I was able to come out you know, a couple of weeks later and, and do improv with G League Ignite. Again, from that was first introduction in 2014 and here that was 2020, so six years later. So you just really have to have the patience to see these things through. but just continue be believing in the product that you're bringing and, and then what you offer in these spaces and just allow yourself to, to keep going. And yes, and even the, the negations of like, no, now's not the time. No, now it's not gonna work. That not letting those things stand in your way. You just keep kind of throwing things at the wall and seeing what sticks. And, and I'm just really appreciative that I keep having these moments where I'll meet someone and down the line, it turns into really amazing opportunities. And, and when I look at this developmental team that the NBA created with G League Ignite, it is uniquely situated for what I do. The entire point of that experience for those players throughout the year is to develop as a player, as a human being to prepare to go to the NBA. And 
that she could recognize the value of improv in supporting that work. It just aligns so well. And so I'm, I'm really excited to work with them again. Uh, they just got out of the bubble this week, the G League bubble. So I'll be oh, wow. able to go back and work with them in California this month and next month and um, continue working with that team as it continues to grow. So I'm just excited improv is being recognized in the athlete development space um, as a really powerful tool. And just to anyone, you know, who's out there in the sports world and, and trying to figure out their way to navigate it, I would just say, nurture the relationships, um, trust what you bring to the table and just keep going. And, and you're going to end up in the spaces where you're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. So recognize, um, I think I posted this earlier this week on, on my social media that any time that I was rejected was a redirection in the place that I needed to go. Maybe I didn't realize that. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So, so there's so much value in the no as well. It's gonna guide you where you need to go. And so just trust that you're gonna end up where you're supposed to be and and, and believe in the work you do. Yeah, no, I, I, I love it. I think it's 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 been reflected in the story you shared and and even you saying there's some teams right now that you'd love to be a part of, but they're just, they're not ready for, for what you're bringing and not forcing that. I I've shared this before on the podcast. I early in my career, I I forced myself into certain teams and, and, uh, and almost sold, right. What, what I was offering. And, and there was one team in particular where it just wasn't a good fit. And Mm -hmm. after that experience, I realized like, okay, I, you, it's gotta be, you've said it synchronistic. It's gotta be symbiotic. It's gotta be, everyone has to be on board with this or it's not going to work. Um, I don't know. I I've been loving your LinkedIn posts since we connected. And I think this might've been your post. If it's not, it's in line with what you're talking about. I've made it my, uh, if, if, if I do show video of this, it's literally the background on my phone now. Um, yes, good. Is this you Eckhart Tolle? I don't know. It was, um, yeah. <laughs> okay. Sometimes surrender means giving up, trying to understand and becoming comfortable with not knowing. And I love that. It really, really, especially now we are, uh, is today. Yeah. Today's March 11th, March 12th was for me when I remember I was in the same office that I'm in right now doing this podcast. It didn't look anything like this. I got a green screen and a whole podcast setup. It was very different. And I was on the phone all day with coaches and clients who were most of them canceling, some of them pushing events to the fall or, or to the summer even. And obviously you know, that was a year ago and things have drastically changed and Mm -hmm. just kind of being more than okay, being accepting of, of not knowing and and just kind of hurry up and wait and trusting the process and seeing where things go. We teach this stuff. I know you teach it. I teach it to athletes all the time. And even practicing it as a professional has been so important over the past year. Uh, so I've appreciated, uh, what did we connect like a week ago? And I think I've, I've, I may have liked every LinkedIn post that you put out. <laughs> I, I think it's been really good. <laughs> Thank you. I get a lot of that feedback. Um, maybe not people don't necessarily engage with the post, but in private emails, there was like, I really love what you share on LinkedIn. Yeah. Yeah. It, LinkedIn's <laughs> funny like that. I know, um, Gary Vaynerchuk is really big on don't worry about how many likes and comments you're getting. Cause you know, I I'm the same way I, I post things on LinkedIn and like Instagram will get a ton of engagement and LinkedIn will get absolutely nothing. And I'm like, well, maybe LinkedIn's not my space. But then when I talk to people, they're like, oh, I really, you know, I, got, I even did like a survey for the podcast. How'd you find it? And a lot of people are from LinkedIn. I'm like, okay. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. exactly. um, don't worry about the likes. It's good. Stuff. Yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> awesome. Well, that was a great story. Um, thank you for doing this. This was awesome. I, I, I really appreciated me. it. I'm, I'm glad you, I'm glad you, uh, it was kind of cool when you, when you reached out and said, obviously you, you know, found it through Harry, but then also connected with Wyatt because, um, that was just a cool, really cool interview for me to do. And a lot mm -hmm. of people have loved it. I've loved Wyatt's interview and, and obviously the connection improv was great. Love it. Yeah, and you didn't make me do improv on the show. So I appreciate that. Nothing against Wyatt, but that was, we did three of those and, and that was the, the, the most worthy of, of putting out there. <laughs> we, we didn't do the, the a formal gamer exercise. Yeah. However, our entire conversation was improvised. That is true. No scripts here. That is very true. Very few notes too. I, chicken scratch notes on my end. <laughs> See? Awesome. There you have it. I loved that cup of coffee and I am so grateful to be connected to Lainey. If you are enjoying the show, please take one minute right now to subscribe wherever you are listening. Give us a rating and leave a review. This helps us tremendously. I read each review we get. I check out every rating. I look at the subscribers. I follow the, the listens, the downloads, all of it. I'm really getting into the data and I love it. I appreciate those of you, if you're listening to this, you listen. I appreciate you listening and subscribing and rating and leave a review. That is the best way to help us grow. It is a big, big help. If I can help you or your team in any way, head on over to bobbyaudley.com. Shoot me a message. We help teams build winning cultures. 50 Cups of Coffee with Bobby Audley is a production of BobbyAudley.com. That's my super creative business name for now. Head on over there to watch the 50 Cups of Coffee TEDx talk, listen to past episodes of the show, and learn how I could help your team or organization. Our theme music and art is by Matisse Soy. Until next time, stay connected.